Well, hey, everybody, it is great to be with you today. And before we go any farther, I need to brag on my wife for a second. Is that cool? Because right now, she and nine other crazy individuals from here at Keystone are running a marathon or a half marathon downtown Grand Rapids. Let's give them a round of applause. I have never been able to figure out why anybody would pay money to run. But here's the thing. I saw this this morning. Thousands of people do. So I must be missing out on something. But they're running as a part of Team World Vision, helping to bring clean drinking water to kids in Africa. So it's a super cool thing. I think they raised over $11,000. And so I could not be more proud as a husband. Uh, anyway, we are in week two of a series that we've called Seven, in which we're exploring seven ancient letters that were addressed to churches in seven cities near the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Here's a map to give you a sense of where those cities are. You're just across the Aegean uh, from Greece to kind of give you a frame of reference. And the letters in question, the letters to these seven churches, were recorded for us in the last book of the Bible, a rather mysterious book called Revelation. And scholars tell us that Revelation is an example of a literary genre called apocalypse that was popular during first century Judaism and the Jewish writers would often leverage apocalypse. And apocalyptic literature is a bit unique. It's identified by its use of extensive metaphor and image, many of which are rooted in like the social, political, and cultural contexts of the times in which they were written. Uh, practically, what all that means for people like you and me is that Revelation can be really challenging to understand, especially if we try to read it literally. And, and in case you've never picked up a copy of the book of Revelation or never made it that far in your Bible, uh, here's an example to show you what I mean by a bit challenging. Midway through the document we call Revelation, the author, a guy named John, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote the following description. And just buckle up, it's awesome. <clears throat> he tells us, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. We could just stop there. Oh no. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. It gets weirder. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. In other words, John has a vision of something that looked like this. <laughs> Which is simultaneously terrifying and kind of awesome, is it not? Yeah. Uh, and to think, without the internet, we'd probably never get to see anything like that image. And so I just want to once again acknowledge Al Gore, who invented the internet for us <laughs> back in the day. What a guy. Uh, anyway, Reve Revelation can be really challenging when you try to read it literally, but I've found that it can also be incredibly hopeful and helpful when read contextually, and, and here's why I say that. It can be hopeful as it can point us beyond our current struggles in life. Uh, it was true for the first audience, and it's true for us today. Point us beyond those current struggles to the day when everything will fully and finally be as God intends it to be. And I say it can be helpful to us because, well, when we consider what was said to those first Christians, then I believe it can challenge us to live more like Jesus wants us to live here and now. And with the rest of our time today, I want to kind of show you what I mean by that. Uh, so today we get to explore the first of those seven letters found in Revelation. It's the one Jesus intended for Christians living in the ancient city 
of Ephesus. And what I want to do is show you a 25-second video of some drone footage from Ephesus to show you what the site looks like should you visit it today. So let's watch this real quick. So the ruins of Ephesus are stunning. Many a cruise ship has docked near there to go walk its ancient streets. But in the first century, Ephesus was the crown jewel of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was the fourth largest city in the world at the time and had a population that was approaching 250,000 people. Uh, the markets of Ephesus served as a crossroads for world trade. You could buy anything in the markets of Ephesus. And so it was quite literally the place where East met West. Uh, residents of Ephesus enjoyed things, again, 2,000 years ago, like running water, uh, Roman baths, fountains, gardens, colonnaded streets paved with marble, gymnasiums, and even, and <clears throat> this is my favorite one, wait for it, indoor toilets. Check it out. As you can see from this picture, um, privacy panels were not invented until much later. Hashtag awkward. How's it going today, Jim? <laughs> Good. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> some of you will get that later. Uh, the church at Ephesus uh, had been founded decades before Revelation was written by a pastor named Paul while he was traveling around the Mediterranean Rim telling everyone he could about Jesus. And in fact, eventually, Paul spends three years in Ephesus teaching and laying the foundations for what would become a strong, missionally-minded community of Jesus followers. And they were strong and missionally-minded at least for a time. And we know this because apparently a generation after the church was founded, somewhere near the end of the first century, the church at Ephesus found itself in need of both encouragement and correction from Jesus, which they receive through the book of Revelation. And Jesus began his message to these ancient Christians in Ephesus with these words. He tells John to write, to the angel at the church of Ephesus. An angel can also be translated messenger there. So to the angel or messenger in the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then, then these words, I know your deeds. Now notice that Jesus begins here by identifying himself as the author of the letter, and he informs the people at the church of Ephesus that he's been observing them, as well as the other six churches in the region. He says that he's been walking among the seven lampstands. So that's the metaphorical way he says it, uh, which represent each of those churches. And practically for them, that means that Jesus sees them, and he knows them, and he cares for them. He, he cares about how they're living, and he cares about what they're doing, and he cares about what they're not doing. It's, it's also worth noting that the image of the church as a lampstand would have deeply resonated with early Jesus followers because of something that they had heard Jesus had said to his first followers, including John, during his time on earth. Uh, decades earlier, in a, mo in a moment designed to envision and motivate them, Jesus looks at his first followers and he says this, You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. 
and it gives light to everyone in the house. So he looks at him and he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. So that's how this happens. How does the light shine from a life of a believer? They see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. In other words, Jesus says to his followers, you, and the you here is plural, so if you're from the south, you get this, it's y'all. <laughs> y'all are like a lampstand from which the light of God's love and mercy and grace can shine into our world. As you live the way of Jesus in flesh and blood, as you love the people around you, especially the ones that are difficult to love, the light from your lives will draw outsiders into your community. So like light and lampstands were images that Jesus leveraged in order to remind his first followers of God's desire that the whole world would come to know him through their good deeds. Their church was to be a light in their community and in their world. Now, now as Jesus continues, um, yeah, we, he gives them words of encouragement and correction. And he begins with the encouragement. Here's what he says. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He says, you have pers persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is good, good news. Jesus says, I know things haven't been easy. I know it's been tempting to give up on hope. I know it's tempting to bow to the unspeakable pressures from your culture. And we talked about that last week. If you missed it, you can catch up online. But Jesus says, you know, in spite of all that, you haven't given up. You've kept giving. You've kept pushing. You've kept believing. You've kept the faith well done. And Jesus goes on because there's more good news. He says, I, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So Jesus says, hey, I appreciate the diligence with which you're vetting your church leaders. I mean, you are rightly concerned that they believe the right things and behave in the right ways. You're protecting the people under your care. You're doing many of the things you should be doing and you almost can feel it, you know, the roller coaster heading over the hill here. He says, yet, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In other words, you've lost your first love. You've lost something critical that was once a priority in your community but seems to no longer be a priority. Which raises a fascinating question, at least for somebody like me that spends time in the Bible. Um, I mean, I, I want to spend the rest of our time answering this question. Here's the question. What was it that they lost? Because I suspect that whatever it is that they lost might be something that we might be in danger of losing, either as individuals or as a community. So what was it that they had at first, but that somehow had been displaced, probably unintentionally, by other priorities? And fortunately for us, um, the New Testament actually contains a record of the early days of the church at Ephesus. We can literally read about what life was like when they first came to know Jesus. And we can sort of infer from that what this love they had at first might have been all about. So the author of a New Testament letter called Acts, A-C-T-S, a man by the name of Luke, describes what happened at Ephesus a generation before Revelation was written. Here's what he tells us. So the gospel enters the city and he says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It's like Luke wants us to know that as the church of Ephesus was forming, as people were coming to believe in Jesus, like pretty much all heaven was breaking loose 
in the city streets. Like sick people were being healed. The power of God was being displayed. And not surprisingly, in short order, Jesus and his church had everyone's attention. They had never experienced anything like this. And so Luke writes that in the city of Ephesus, he says the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. It, it, it was respected. People were curious. It says many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. So all of a sudden people are talking about the ways they used to live and the ways they no longer want to live. And he pushes it farther. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. It says in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In other words, the church at Ephesus began without like a well-organized plan in place, at least from a human perspective. It was like the wild, wild west of church planting. Like I've got some friends that have planted churches and it's not for the faint of heart. And Randy can tell you that when Keystone was planted, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting in those early years. And it's sort of like in Ephesus, it was that, you know, times a hundred because it's like, it's like all of heaven is breaking loose. No one has time to properly submit the paperwork for a 501c3 nonprofit status as a religious organization, right? I mean, nobody began to print the church bulletins or had time to install an organ or to start a bell choir and you can't have a church without a bell choir, right? Yeah. It's like God's love just started moving through the city streets of Ephesus in unexpected ways, and lives were undeniably changing. People were coming to faith, and all that Christians in Ephesus could do was like to be swept up into it. There was an energy, there was passion, there was compassion. The church was growing exponentially beyond their ability to organize around it, and it was absolutely chaotic, and it was indescribably beautiful. The love of God for lost and broken people washed over Ephesus like a wave. And all that existing Jesus followers could do, they had little choice but to like embody that same love. And then notice with me too that Luke mentions sorcery scrolls being burned. And that's a really significant detail if you think about it. I mean like sorcery has its roots in superstition and superstition has its roots in the fear that, like, the gods or whoever's in control up there are fundamentally angry. And so in response to that, people need to come up with the right spells and behaviors and rituals in order to, like, keep those gods appeased, kind of like, or else. But, but see, apparently, when ancient people who practiced sorcery heard the good news of what Jesus had done, when they received that good news as individuals, when they learned that the God who had created them was good— and loved them just as they were, and that he had sent his one and only son, Jesus, to make peace with them by his blood shed on the cross, they understood that they no longer had to live with a deep insecurity about where they stood with the divine. Because of Jesus, they could know where they stood. They could know peace. And so their sorcery scrolls were like, not only were they unnecessary, but, but they pulled them in the wrong direction, and so they needed to Burn. And Luke tells us the scrolls were incredibly valuable. And yet in the light of what Jesus had done for them, they were worthless. And this was an unprecedented shift in the way people thought about God in the ancient world. I mean, that movement from superstition to a belief of a God of love and grace was a profound step forward in human history. Like both the reception of love and grace from God and then the call to embody that same love and grace to other lost and broken people. And this shift caused the church of Ephesus to explode in growth. Now, with that background, let's return to Jesus' words at the church of Ephesus 
And let's talk about what it might have been, that first love that they had lost, even if they lost it unintentionally. I want to revisit one line that we already read that at least for me suggests what that first love must have been. As you may recall, while relaying the words of encouragement, Jesus said the following. He said, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be, and here's the word we're going to focus in on, apostles, but are not, and have found them false. Okay, so in the ancient church, apostles were people who held positions of authority and power and who were maybe even believed to have some sort of special connection with Jesus. So, at least to me, what appears to have happened is that decades after the church was launched in beautiful chaos, it had become organized and maybe even like attractive to people who desired to build careers as religious professionals. Always those people are sketchy critters. I'm just telling you. I'm just kidding. Right? Yeah. Uh, people who were like maybe more interested in running an institution than being a part of a movement that the institution was created to facilitate. And so the story of the Ephesian church began with a group of people desperate to share the good news of what Jesus had done with lost and broken people in their community. Uh, in other words, like in those early days, the energies of the church were focused outward in love and grace and compassion and mercy. But like a generation later, somehow, it's like the church's energy had turned inward like away from outsiders and towards dealing with issues of church leadership and debating how to best articulate what they believed. Early church fathers actually tell us that the church at Ephesus was known for its right theology. It had a reputation of like, man, they talk about Jesus and, and how to believe in Jesus in ways that no one else seems to have captured. But in order to do that, they put a lot of energy into that endeavor. And, and that's why I think when Jesus says that they've lost their first love, he's challenging them to remember their roots. He's like, remember what it was like when this experiment in church was new and it was real and it was raw and it was messy and it was chaotic and it was beautiful. I can almost hear him say to them, you remember, remember, remember those early days when like all you cared about was helping people find and follow Jesus? See what I did there? Just slip that right in. Yeah, find and follow. Yeah. Hey, in those days, man, you were bold and joyous and fresh and creative as you shared the good news of what Jesus had accomplished for you in our world. But like somewhere along the way, you've lost that passion. You've lost that impulse. And so like, as I imagine it for the years leading up to the writing of Revelation, they've been working hard trying to figure out like who was supposed to be in leadership for the right reasons and who's there for the wrong reasons and how should we best organize ourselves and... And, and like in the process, they'd lost their first love. I mean, I, as I think about it, could this be why Jesus began his letter to the Ephesian Christians by describing himself as moving among the golden lampstands? Like remember, those lampstands are to remind the church that they're not just here for themselves. You're not just here for our, who's already a part of your organization. You're actually, the church is the only organization in the world that exists foundationally for the belief of that people that are not yet a part of the organization have value and, and we need to be serving them. It's like the church of Ephesus needs to be reminded they're not simply called to form a well-organized spiritual club and they're not just here to be doctrinally correct. I mean, those are good things, don't get me wrong, but, but they can't be the first thing. They're here to allow God's love and grace for lost and broken people to flow through them to the rest of the world. And I'm convinced that's what they had lost. 
Now check out what Jesus says next, because it actually gets a little hopeful. He says, consider how far you've fallen. Like, remember your roots? And then he says this, repent and do the things you did at first. And I love this because it says that Jesus has not given up on them. He, wants, he loves them. He still wants to use them. He needs to remind them. So he says, repent. Repent just means to turn back or to return. And do the things you did at first. He says, if you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from his place. He says, then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as I think about that, it's like Jesus is saying, you know, you must return to your roots because you're well on your way to becoming ineffective. You're in danger of losing the light of influence in your community. And I love your community. And deep down, I know you do too, but you've got to bring that back to the forefront. So you need to repent. You need to return to priority number one. You need to return to your first love. Now, as I was preparing this week, and, I'm, and I got to this point, I, I, started, I started thinking about there's something else that we really should consider as we explore this text. And for me, it starts with something I always used to say during my years in student ministry before coming to Keystone. I was a, a student ministry pastor for 15 years. And I would say this thing, and I would say it especially when I was taking a group of students somewhere else in the world to love and serve in Jesus' name. And here's, here's, what, here's what I would say. And there was even a song, I won't sing it for you, but here's, that would be tragic. People online would tune out. I know, I got you. Okay, but yeah, um, here's what I would say. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and I love this because it, it actually reminds us of who we're supposed to be in the world. Like we're supposed to love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served. People should be able to look at us to see what Jesus is like and that's all, that's all great. But I must confess that since leaving student ministry, I've met with a whole lot of people for whom statements like this have caused a lot of pain and confusion. And maybe, maybe this is your story. Maybe someone in your life, this is their story. But, but here's what happens. Like, somebody gets hurt by a church or a pastor or a priest or a deacon or an elder or a small group leader. And, and, and the trouble is, if, if in that moment they've connected the church with Jesus so much so that whatever the church does or doesn't do is what Jesus does or doesn't do, then when someone like that decides to walk away from the church, they think that they need to walk away from Jesus too. It's like one in the same. And if, if they reject the church, and sometimes, I mean, I've met with people that have to sort of reject the church for that situation, then they believe they also must reject Jesus. And, and hear me, if you're here and that's been something in your past or you have someone, that is just not true. And that's one of the reasons why I love the letter to the church at Ephesus, because whenever I have conversations with people and they've just, they've got the two so tightly connected, I'm like, yes, that is how it should be. That is the ideal. But here's the thing, the church has people in it. <laughs> and so it's just not as clean as it should be. But I'll point it back to this passage, because in this passage, Jesus speaks to a church from outside of that church. And so we actually know that Jesus thinks that sometimes some of the things that churches do in his name are wrong. And this passage illustrates that, that he has this sort of prophetic relationship with his church. So he comes to them both to encourage them and to correct them. And honestly, I, I find that thought incredibly helpful and hopeful Whenever I meet with people who've been hurt by people like me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times at Starbucks I have uttered the phrase, I'm so sorry that happened to you. 
And you really, you really need to know that Jesus is sorry too. Because what you experienced isn't what he had in mind for his followers or for his church. I, I think he would tell that church leader that, that did that to you or said that to you to repent. And to return to the sorts of things that he desires for his church. Because it's very possible that he or she has lost their focus on what is supposed to be the first love of all Jesus' followers. The love for broken and hurting people who don't yet know what Jesus has done for them. All right, here's, here's kind of where all this lands for me. Um, it, it actually makes me ask some tough questions, both personally and then maybe a little bit even organizationally, but an organization is a group of individuals. So, uh, and for me, it, starts, it started this week with a bit of self-reflection, and just so I invite you into the practice. It, it's like if you take a moment and honestly think about your faith, like how you experience it, how you think about it, how you articulate it, um, is your faith in Jesus actively demonstrated by the way that you love lost and broken people? Or has your faith, and I think there's a gravitational pull this way, so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here, um, but has your faith become more about believing the right things and behaving to, according to a set of religious rules? And, and here's why I say that, because as, as good as right belief and right behavior are, and they are good and they are critical things, they just can't be the most important thing. As individuals and as an organization, we must always keep in front of ourselves Jesus' affirmation, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. And to the Jews, the house, God's house, is the world. So in the same way, he says, light, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. And friends, I, I believe that the church in Ephesus moving forward recaptured their first love. And part of the reason I think that is within a couple hundred years, the church of Jesus had completely rocked the culture of the Roman Empire. It changed things. And it, it made an impact in its world. And here's the thing, that's still how followers of Jesus like you and me can make a difference in our world today. So this week, I'd encourage you to take some time just to reflect on your faith journey. Where did it start? Where has it gone? And, and so it, ask yourself the question, is it possible that maybe some priorities have shifted and I need to make an intentional shift? I need to repent and return to what Jesus had in mind to return to the first love. All right, now if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Father, it is a humbling exercise to consider that we may have failed in the same way your ancient followers had failed. But for this moment, we just want to say thank you for preserving this ancient letter that somehow seems more relevant than ever. Thank you not only that you love the church enough to encourage her 
to return to her roots, uh, to repent, but also that when they do, when we do, um, our love and grace has the potential to flow into our world. I pray that the light from our lives and the light from our church would shine brightly into our community as we continue to gather around and celebrate the grace and mercy that we have been shown in your son, Jesus. We are here because of him. And we love you because you first loved us. And so for today, we say thank you. We honor you. We bless you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of seven. Yeah.